<clears throat> Welcome back, everybody. This is episode eight of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Bumani, and I'm here with Brandon Guthrie of Bengals underscore uh, NFL. He's created an IG page, pretty much centered on Bengals content, and he's been wanting to be on the podcast since his inception. And now we're both here today. He's my first guest on the podcast. And before we go into these four topics that I have planned out for the both of us, just want to have an opportunity to give Brandon a chance to talk about himself and, you know, his, his content that he produces on Instagram on a daily basis. So, Brandon, let the um, listeners know what you're about. Yeah, I appreciate you letting me do this. Uh, so, as you said, I run Bengals underscore NFL. I'm big into the analysis. You won't see a lot of editing on my page. I'm all about analyzing situations, breaking down potentially free agent targets, draft targets, I'm about giving the best insight and information available. I also co-own a website, BengalsInsiders.com, which is almost like an extended version of my Instagram page where we just go more in depth. Because obviously Instagram, you have the caption limits and everything. So the website lets us go more in depth. So yeah, as I said, I'm huge with the analysis breaking down, going by details. Right now I'm doing a lot of scouting reports especially on offensive linemen, and I'm sure we'll get to in a minute, but obviously offensive line is a huge need for the Bengals. So yeah, I just like to do a lot of stuff like that. And so as we go into that right now, my first topic obviously is the state on your team, the Cincinnati Bengals. They've done a variety of things in the past year to get to kind of where they are right now. They did finish the season 4-11-1, last place in the AFC North yet again. But there's a variety of individuals that people know in the league they do stand out on the team. And so let's focus on that generous aspect first. Uh, we know what Joe Burrow brought to the table offensively, the likes of Jesse Bates defensively. Um, they could be those two guys, but what other players on your squad you feel like stood out in a way that gives you hope and belief for the franchise to progress moving forward in the year 2021? Yeah, so uh, two receivers that are a huge bright spot is Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins. Tyler Boyd's been the Bengals' most consistent receiver for the past few years he's most of his snaps come out of the slot and obviously he's had a few thousand yard seasons and he's been extremely reliable target he's really developed and progressed over the last three years and he's just a really say comfortable target for Joe Burrow and the same goes to T Higgins who was rookie out of Clemson. Obviously, he's going into his second season now, pick 33, and he's the A.J. Green replacement. He's going to be their X receiver, and he may not be as athletic or fast or quick as A.J. Green, but their play styles are very similar. They catch just about anything. If you throw him a jump ball, nine out of ten times, he's going to come down with it. And routes like curls, slants, or really any red zone routes inside the five, he's going to catch the ball in. Something also similar to A.J. Green he has and kind of goes with his route running tree is his toe tapping. Something that we saw from A.J. Green throughout his time with the Bengals was his ability to get his feet in. And we saw a lot of that from T. Higgins. Two plays come to mind, one against the Colts, one against the Titans, where he had a touchdown against the Colts where he was being hit as he caught the ball on the end of the end zone. And he somehow got his feet in. And then similarly versus the Titans, it wasn't a touchdown, but it was a throw down the sideline. It was a jump ball. It was a missed pass interference call, but it didn't matter because he still caught the ball while he was being pushed. He managed to drag his feet down. So those are two extremely bright spots offensively for the Bengals. 
as we switch to the defensive side, Carl Lawson, who is an up-and-coming free agent, but reports suggesting he's the Bengals' number one priority. He's a great defensive end. He only had a four and a half sacks last season, but a big part of that was he was really the only consistent edge rusher for the Bengals. And when you only have one dominant pass rusher, it's really hard to produce sacks and really any other statistics because the offensive line is so focused on that while they really not concerned about anybody else on that defensive line where Geno Atkins, he missed the last half of the season with an injury. Obviously, Carlos Dunlap was traded. Mike Daniels, when he was healthy, he was a reliable guy in the interior defensive line, but he's not the player he once was. And another bright star I want to talk about before we move on is Logan Wilson, the rookie linebacker out of Wyoming. He missed the last few weeks because of injury common theme about the Bengals injuries but he was a very good young linebacker for the Bengals this season he showed a wide variety of why you should give hope he was a very smart player his instincts are just very natural he reads plays quickly really good on the blitz and kind of hiding when he's blitzing or not he doesn't have to run up to the line of skirmish he's blitzing he has really great patience and his pass coverage was much better than I was expecting he was consistent and he's just a really bright and young linebacker for the Bengals. And the linebacker for the Bengals for so long has been a big need. And between him and also Jermaine Pratt, who may not be the superstar of the future, but a reliable linebacker, the Bengals quickly turned over that linebacker room. Yeah, and so the two biggest names that you said that stood out for me personally, Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins. I actually did like T. Higgins coming out of Clemson. I knew when they got him, he had a potential to possibly replace A.J. Green, who's been on the roster for a while. And we know what Tyler Boyd brought to the table a year prior. I actually had him in fantasy, and he played very well under those horrendous circumstances with, you know, Andy Dalton, that offensive line a year ago. And so, obviously, the big thing that we both know are the Bengals' offensive line. Hasn't been great the last two seasons. We knew last year Jonah Williams, their first-round pick, didn't play because of injury. He actually played 10 games this year. And you could kind of say he is probably the most consistent aspect within their own line so far. The rest of it is a work in progress. We understand. And talks I've heard and other Bengal fans speaking on this, they're intrigued by the aspect of maybe getting Jamar Chase at receiver. But we all do understand that to win in the NFL, as we saw in the Super Bowl as well, you need an offensive line to protect your franchise quarterback and Joe Burrow to make the records with those, to have your offense reach its fullest potential. So as a fan in particular, God, it has tons of insight on the Bengals day in and day out. If you have the likes of a, Sewell or Jamar Chase on the board where you guys are currently picking in this year's draft, which decision would be the most influential for these guys to make in the next four to five years? Oh, absolutely. Penny Sewell. I'm, I don't even have to think about that. And obviously free agency has some impact on that, but even so the offensive tackle depth and free agency isn't great. And based on initial reports, it sounds like some of the better offensive tackles are going to be franchise tagged or they're in talks with their team about a contract extension. So as you said, Jonah Williams, a very consistent player. He played above average, at worst average this season, obviously. It really being his rookie year since, as you said, he missed all of his real rookie season. He's still developing. But Sewell, as you just talked about, offensive line is extremely important. 
especially when you have a young quarterback who's going to be really good. You got to be able to protect him. So if they can get two young but really talented offensive linemen and have them for the foreseeable future, that would help out Joe Burrow tremendously. And before we pivot, I actually want to touch base on your defensive playmaker known as Jesse Bates. He's been arguably one of the more underrated safeties in all of football. Finally kind of got the recognition he deserved this year. And when you look at his statistics the two years prior, he's been always doing this. Same number of interceptions, three. So he's got nine total in his young career. He's been able to accumulate 100-plus tackles. As a fan, what does he do on a week-to-week basis that impresses you and makes you proud that he's finally getting the national recognition from the various fan bases across the league and the beat riders across the nation as well that he deserves at the safety position? Yeah, if you watch him, the first thing that really pops out is his IQ and instincts. He's just a really smart player. He has the ability to see kind of where the play is going. You see a lot of pre-plays. He's like, he may point out one side. He may be wondering what he is. He was actually pointing out a screenplay that he could read and he could tell based off watching film from the week prior. And you just don't see any hesitation from him. He knows where the play is where it's going and he doesn't doubt himself and he doesn't need to because he's just such an extremely smart player he's able to read the play just right off the bat so his instincts and his and because of his instincts and IQ are so high it also helps his game speed especially when you don't have to doubt yourself as soon as he reads the play he goes flying in whether it's for an interception pass breakup or halfback toss or just something like that just his game speed is tremendous and just really impressive for such a young player. And I think the reason he's finally getting this recognition and he's been a, a lot more consistent this year prior to his last two years, one game he looked really good, then the next game he would struggle a bit. Part of that I put on the defensive coordinator, Lou Anarumo, because he didn't exactly put him in great positions. There was a few times where he would put him in the box and, expecting to basically be a linebacker and you don't do that to your free safety who's 220 pounds I believe but he was even though I still don't like Luana Rumo he put in more of his natural free safety position which allowed him to play more consistently so I think that's why people are starting to recognize because when you let your defensive playmakers play where they're supposed to be playing that's going to help them play a lead on a consistent basis when you have a guy like Jesse Bates. So Zach Taylor is obviously you guys head coach and I for one for sure thought maybe he'd be gone after the season you guys had last year, but I kind of took it to account Burrow did get hurt um, as the second half of the season was nearing his close. You guys did really rally together as a unit. We're able to get a huge Monday night football win against the Pittsburgh Steelers, arguably one of the upsets of, this, of the year. And so we can arguably both say that Zach Taylor's on the quote unquote hot seat this season. What's the one thing as a head coach he needs to get done, not just to keep his job, but to show substantial growth that ownership in Cincinnati can look at and see this is a guy we can continue to build with and rebuild our culture in the future. Yeah, It's a cliche answer, but he needs to start winning and winning consistently. Obviously we're not going to expect the Bengals to pull off some 10 and six or 11 and five season next year. They're more than one off season away. We just need to show progress and win more games. He only won, I believe, one, maybe two games by one possession this year. And he only has, I believe, three or four total one possession game wins. So he's just not been able to pull out those tight games. And not all that's on him. Games like 
against the Cleveland Browns, the, not the Thursday night game, but the second game they played in the season. The defense really blew that one up. They scored a go-ahead touchdown with less than two minutes left, and the defense completely choked. So not all of it's on him, but he needs to show more consistency in the play calling. There are games like the Colts this past year where the offense was rolling, but then when they got a big lead, he just kind of put his foot off the pedal, didn't allow Joe Burrow to do his thing, and then that let the Colts come back. So he needs to show more power especially with Joe Burrow, just let him do his thing. Don't put your foot off the pedal, especially if it's working. And like the locker room, they're rallying behind him despite the lack of success, especially these young players. They believe his message. They love the culture he brings. So the locker room is certainly behind him, or at least majority of it. Guys like Geno Atkins and AJ Green, not so much, but they're like AJ Green's a free agent. So it doesn't really matter that much now, but he just needs to start winning, and I really don't think his play calling is even all that bad. It's just a matter of consistency and keeping the foot on the pedal and being able to pull out these close games. And I think all those things are very important. I do like what the Bengals have on the roster. Obviously, we both can agree. Building an identity on the offensive and defensive line or influencing them probably progressing from where they are right now into getting at least towards mediocre level, and then from there you can progress into a winning football program once again. So we'll move on to the J.J. Watt topic, Houston Texans. He was traded, you know, earlier in the week. Well, not traded. He was released earlier in the week from Houston. And obviously we're going to talk about what that means for the Houston Texans as a franchise as a whole, because currently they still have Deshaun Watson, who is a big-time elephant in the room for that franchise. But with J.J. Watt at this point in his career, where do you possibly see him going? Does he have enough in the tank? And what would, he, what would you think his ideal role would be on any type of NFL team? this late in his career? Yeah, so obviously the J.J. Watt scenario is very, let's just say, unique. Obviously, he still had a really good year this year, despite he's getting up there in age. I believe his PFF grade for the year was over 90. So according to all the analytics, he still got a lot in the tank. So I think he's going to want to go to a win-now team because he knows that he does, he's not the young player he once was in his time's limited. And let's be honest, kind of much like A.J. Green with the Bengals, a lot of his prime years were kind of wasted with Houston. So he's probably going to want to go to teams that's on the up and rise. And a team that comes to mind, and I really don't like what I'm about to say, is the Cleveland Browns. They made a huge step. And there's reports saying he has a lot of interest or at least wants to learn more about the Browns. And from J.J. Watt's perspective, that makes sense. Obviously, the Browns finally have that winning season. They make the playoffs. They get past the wild card. And why not? He should be interested in them. They have playing alongside of Miles Garrett. And you have a, they have a young quarterback. They have OBJ. And that team's just really young and really exciting. And they're, I, again, I hate to say it, but there's no reason to think they can't make a serious run in the next two to three years. So, for a guy like J.J. Watt, that would make a lot of sense for him to go. So, And some of the Bengals players like D.J. Readers trying to recruit J.J. Watt, but, I mean, if I'm J.J. Watt and as much as I love the Bengals, there's no reason for him to come here as just because there's just not a lot the Bengals are going to do in the next few years. So he definitely wants to go to a win-now team and a team that, probably made the playoffs last year or has a young quarterback and the team's already set in a great position. 
So that's where I see J.J. Watt going. Like I said, he only has a few dominant years left, so he's going to want to spend that on a winning team. I agree, and I did also see the uh, post by DJ Reader joining what seems like every NFL team in the free agency circuit trying to recruit J.J. Watt the best that they can. Um, So his last two seasons, he amassed 75 tackles, 38 quarterback hits, nine sacks, three forced fumbles, and 10 passes defended. So I think it was the year before he got hurt. The last time he got hurt, he had a double-digit sack total, 16. That was the year where Houston lost to the Colts in the first round of the wildcard, you know, the wildcard playoffs. And so with Wad, I do agree. I think at this point of his career, I don't expect him to be an every-down defensive lineman, but he'd be a very productive rotational guy on a winning team. And you brought up the Cleveland Browns, who I feel for the past three years, their only pass rusher has been Miles Garrett. And so just to have another guy on the other side of the of the defensive line that can bring a sense of pedigree and edge rushing ability to that team would help them enormously because I feel like their Achilles Hill against the Chiefs was their inability to get pressure on Patrick Mahomes in the divisional round. And so spot like Cleveland, Hurt Pittsburgh, Green Bay. The thing about Pittsburgh is, and we'll see with Watt, he has shown an ability to play in the 3-4 or the 4-3. Does he want to be a 3-4 lineman again? Maybe not. Maybe at this point in his career, he's content being an edge rusher in a 4-3 and, you know, getting his career numbers and getting his level of productivity just off of playing the run and playing the pass to the best of his ability. So with the Houston Texans as a franchise, uh, we could kind of both say that right now they're in a prideful, you know, manner. They want to go out of their own way and make sure that Deshaun Watson doesn't get what he wants. And so I have kind of a little bit of opinion on that, and I'll address that after you state yours. But my question to you is, where do the Texans go from here, and what would be the ideal situation for them as a NFL organization now that you lost your leader on defense on the cusp of losing your leader on offense? What should they do to try to maximize their potential down the line? Yeah, so there was a report earlier this week. I'm not sure how true it was. As you said, the Texans are very prideful. I think that's a great way to say it. They don't want to trade J.J. Watt. They may let him just sit. That's a horrible mistake on their part because at this point, there's nothing they can do to fix what how Deshaun Watson feels. So I feel their best bets, trade him, get as many first-round picks as you can. If you can trade him to a team like the Jets or maybe the Panthers who are – one of the teams rumored to have a ton of interest in him and you can get a ton of draft draft capital, maybe even a really dominant young player in return. Like for example, for the Panthers, maybe they can get those first round picks and Christian McCaffrey. That would be a win for both sides. And then if they can, or let's say they trade with the Jets and they get picked too. Yeah, Trevor Lawrence won't be on the board. We got Justin Fields, Zach Wilson, and just guys like that who... Yeah, they're not going to be Deshaun Watson their rookie year, but when you have a quarterback who wants to get the heck out of the team, that's your best bet, getting an elite quarterback prospect. And it's never guaranteed that you're going to have that chance. So if you have that chance and you know Watson's not going to play for you, they have to utilize that or else. The Texans fans are pretty well aware that Watson's not going to want to be on the team next year. So if you just let him ride the bench, not only are you pissing off Watson – and you're not maximizing potential, you're going to lose people in that fan base. Obviously, Texans aren't exactly seen as a good franchise, and if they do that, just let them ride the bench. They're just going to have more people and have worse media attention. It's just going to be a disaster in Houston. 
Yeah, I agree as well. And I do think their philosophy right now is they're, it's, it's part pride and I think it's part horrible. And I understand and respect what they're doing right now. But I do think as we head into the month of March when free agency occurs and everybody goes to various pro days to see which prospects that they like, things of that nature, as we get in the draft cycle, they're going to have to you know, be professional. And they're going to have to make the best deal that a team gives them that's available. I did hear the rumor about the Panthers offering three first-round picks and Christian McCaffrey. And I feel like if I was the Texans, you know, upper management, it would be no more than – the starting point would obviously be two first-round picks at least. But it would be ideally three first-round picks, a starter on offense, and a starter on defense. And I'm saying that because you're losing your best defensive player in J.J. Watt. And even when J.J. Watt was there last year, they were not a very good defensive team. And you're going to lose your best offensive player in Deshaun Watson. So you don't have to get guys that replace Watson and Watt at their ideal positions, but get you a starting caliber NFL talent that can be a placeholder that you can build around the rest of the roster with an array of young talents. And they're also in a division the AFC South where they'll have a wiggle room to be pretty bad because Jacksonville is not going to be pretty good for, for a couple of years. You know, we're going to talk about what Carson Wentz possibly means to the Colts later on in the podcast. And the Titans are and have been at the top of the division the last two years, but Tannehill's kind of getting older. The running style of Derrick Henry could have its potential toll. Corey Davis will be a free agent as well. And defensively, they weren't that good either. So it would be best inevitably, I think, starting next month for them to start looking towards the future and taking the best ideal deal available than any franchise within the league gives to them. Yeah, completely agreed. And like you said, they just need NFL caliber players, game changers. Like you said, it doesn't have to be a J.J. Watt defensive lineman. It could be a corner. It could be a linebacker. It could be a safety. They just need somebody on that defense to make a difference. And similar to offense, if you can get an offense and defensive player and still get those first-round picks, you're really setting yourself up for a bright future because if you – when you do get that replacement quarterback, and let's say it is Christian McCaffrey from the Panthers, you're going to have a quarterback on a rookie deal with Christian McCaffrey. That's already going to be a highly dangerous offense. And they can get somebody else on that offensive line then. In addition, you have a playmaker on defense and keep adding to it. You're setting yourself up for a bright future. So I definitely think that's the path Houston has to go down if they want to be successful in these next few years. I agree. Next up, we're going to talk about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They are the Super Bowl champions. And I don't know about you, but I can agree as well. Didn't expect them to that dominantly destroy the Kansas City Chiefs that Sunday night, a defending Super Bowl champion or previously defending one at that. And they really took advantage of Kansas City's ineptitude on the offensive line. Coming in, we knew Chiefs didn't have three of their starting offensive linemen. I thought maybe Andy Reid could game plan it to a point where utilizing Mahomes' dual threat ability and his greatness as a passer, they can kind of stave that off and be productive as an offense. They didn't do that at all. And so now Tampa Bay's a champ. And they're in a position where they have some pretty big-time free agents coming up. And I'm going to list all of them. Chris Godwin, and there's been talks that they're going to franchise tag him. So we can both kind of assume he'll maybe more than likely be on the roster next year. But there's a chance Levante David won't, Shaq Barrett won't, Antonio Brown possibly not. The Dominican Sue and Rob Gronkowski could come back on one-year deals because they're aging veterans. But Leonard Fournette, after his playoff run, could possibly get the payday he was probably looking for after he got cut from the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so we look at the Buccaneers. What are the moves that they need to make to obviously not just, you know, 
repeat as champions, but win a division and be back into the playoffs competing for a right to defend their title. Yeah, so obviously I think the big one, Shaquille Barrett, obviously one of the currently most dominant and effective edge rushers. And talking about him kind of hurts because the Bengals bungled a contract with him a few years ago, but he's such a dominant player. But it seems like the reports are he wants his test free agency. He And there hasn't been much contract talks between the Buccaneers and him. So that will be really interesting. But if I, And it's also important to know that the Buccaneers don't have as much cap space as other teams in the NFL. They have Tom Brady, even if it's on a two-year contract. His cap hit for next year is pretty significant. And that's the downside of paying massive contracts to quarterbacks obviously it's necessary as it showed for the Buccaneers as they won the Super Bowl and Tom Brady had a great performance but they're going to lose people in certain areas and especially if they franchise tag Chris Godwin then they're playing with limited cap money I and I think if they do tag Godwin they're just not going to have the money for Barrett so I think they should definitely try and keep Shaquille Barrett, but obviously that's easier said than done at the end of the day. I'm not sure they're going to have enough to keep him. But when you, as you talked about their veteran free agents, guys like Rob Gronkowski and Sue, I think they can get them back at a reasonable price. Both of them had effective games in the Super Bowl and definitely not the players they once were, but they're still pieces on that offense and defense that really put the Buccaneers in position to win that Super Bowl. So I think guys like soon Rob, Rob Gonkrowski should be one of their main targets as they won't be as expensive, but they bring a lot to the team. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm going to start with Shaquille Bear first, because that's kind of where you started your perspective as well. You know, he had a unique season this year. Uh, let's go back to last year. He led the league in sacks. And to this day, I don't know why he wasn't a first-team All-Pro when he led the league in sacks. I always feel like as a defensive player, if you lead any of the major statistical categories in anything, whether it's sacks, interceptions, you got to be at least considered as a first-team All-Pro at that position. He was a second-team All-Pro. And so comes back next year, offensive lines understand what he brought to the table the year prior. They key in on him, and he doesn't have that dominant regular season that he did last year. But in the postseason, he showed his worth against Green Bay, where he had three sacks. And against Kansas City, where he practically lived in the backfield, terrorizing Patrick Mahomes. So his playoff run, which he also admitted on the Colin Coward show, he admitted that it helped elevate his stock. And he's also embraced the fact that he wants to cash out. He's a 28-year-old who, during his time when he was with the Denver Broncos, was his rotational D lineman, never got true PT, got finally true PT with the Buccaneers, and he could possibly cash out in a massive payday. So I expect him to not be back. The guy that they, I think, is the most important player they should keep is Levante David. He was an interior linebacker for them that, in my opinion, allowed Devin White to play off ball. And there was a lot of critique on Devin White in his rookie year. He was very athletic, sideline to sideline, um, linebacker, great in run support. But he's not the most disciplined, not the most fundamentally sound when it comes to reading his keys defensively. If you lose a guy like Levante David, who is the quarterback of the linebacking group, you possibly put out a chance where Devin White has to move into that role. And I'm not sure he's going to be comfortable running full-time middle linebacking duties in the NFL and be productive like he has been early on in his career. So that's a guy that they should probably focus all of their funds to keeping. He is 31 years old. And due to the fact that he did a very good job in covering Travis Kelsey in the Super Bowl, there will be a team that will probably cash out significantly for him. 
And so those are the two key guys, in my opinion, they're going to have to try to keep. Probably not going to keep Shaq Barrett, but I do think keeping Levante David is ever so important. If they're able to keep one of the two, that'll be very influential in their defense, maintaining its productivity and credibility. And then from there, we'll see if they can compete for a Super Bowl again. I don't think they will. I think they were very fortunate in the playoffs, doing what a lot of playoff teams usually do when they win the Super Bowl, take advantage of their opposition's miscues within the game they're playing against, and they execute very well. Saints, they profited off of Drew Brees' various interceptions against Green Bay. They took advantage of the turnovers Green Bay had that Green Bay didn't take advantage of the turnovers Tampa Bay had. And in the Super Bowl, they pretty much realized the mismatch that they had as a defensive line against Kansas City's offensive line. They terrorized Mahomes. And so things like that don't always align every playoff run. Guys get healthy, teams get better. But that's kind of my perspective on it currently for the Bucs. Yeah, absolutely. You bring up a great point with Levante, David. I'm just curious to see what direction they go because, as you mentioned, Devin White showed a lot of shown a lot of flashes, and the Buccaneers obviously took him at five a few years ago because they kind of want him to take the mantle of Levante, David. And it's and it, whether the Bucks decide to focus in on David or not, it's really going to show insight on how they feel about Levante White or Devin White, and just if they focus really hard on keeping Levante David, that could really speak volumes to how they really feel about White and possibly drafting him that high possibly be a mistake. For sure, for sure. And the last topic I want to touch base on, Carson Wentz. Is he still a franchise-caliber quarterback? And I kind of made a comment on it on my Instagram page. And right when I made it, he I traded to the Colts. And so before we talk about his fit with the Colts, let's talk about Carson Wentz as the prospect, as the player. He's been in the league four years, and he's had a really strange season. So strange career, I might add. We all know what happened last year, led the league in interceptions, was the most sacked quarterback in the league. Philadelphia's offensive line was in shambles, didn't really have a consistent running game, and then his weapons outside were pretty much horrific. They weren't the most consistent guys. He was throwing basically the practice squad individuals. And so if you look at his career in a nutshell, it's kind of odd. So his rookie year and last year were the two years where he had double-digit interception seasons. Those other three, he threw seven picks a year to go with like 25 touchdowns, things of that nature. And so it's been shown when the right supporting cast is around him, he's productive. When the non-ideal supporting cast is around him, he's not. And I personally feel like when a situation like that arises, that separates in my opinion, a solid NFL quarterback from a franchise quarterback, because I feel like a franchise quarterback, whatever situation they're in, they'll find a way to be productive. Now, not always productive to the point where they're going to win a Super Bowl, but productive enough to where in a division that Philly was in last year, they win a division and they make the postseason. Winston was able to do that the year prior, but not so much this year with an offensive line that was in shambles and really a coaching staff that kind of gave up on him. And so what's your overall opinion on Carson Wentz as a player? And how do you think that would translate to his uh, new career with the Indianapolis Colts? Yeah, as you said, Carson Wentz's career is just very weird. And he kind of reminds me of a more athletic Andy Dolan. I just kind of make that comparison because Andy Dolan was kind of similar in terms of if you have the pieces around him, he's going to be a really good quarterback. But as soon as it's not the perfect offense or – one target's out that he's very comfortable with, he's going to struggle. Now, obviously, Wentz, he's more athletic, has a better ability to 
whenever a play breaks down to extend it and throw on the run and has a lot better arm strength than Andy. But in terms of just like style of offense and how they play when things break down, they're kind of similar. But I think once he still has that potential, and as you said, he just hasn't had that staff. But I see in the long run, as he's played four or five years now, if he hasn't, it's really hard seeing him developing that, being kind of that solid guy when things are right to being that elite top 10, top five quarterback. I just don't think that's who he is. I think he can be a really good one, as you said, when he has those right pieces, but he's not going to be able to keep up with Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson or quarterbacks like them, even if he does have a good supporting cast and lets it that offense basically has a perfect game plan. So I think he can definitely be a really good key holder. I think he can lead the Colts to playoff wins and such that, but unless of everything's perfect, I don't see him being a true game-changing quarterback. Yeah, I, you know, when it comes to Wentz, I feel like this year and at times throughout his career, he has the mentality of a Brett Favre, but he has the measurables and the play style of a Cam Newton. And the, with the Brett Favre comparison, Brett Favre in his prime was lauded as a top five quarterback. And I understand why it was a different period of time where the quarterback was just starting to be more of a focal point on offense in terms of the amount of times they threw the football from a passing it to perspective. But Wentz has this feel that, I've got the massive cannon of an arm. I can make any throw and I can make any risky decision, no matter what type of tight coverage it is. And then when it comes to the Cam Newton comp that I gave him, he's basically Cam Newton all over again. The footwork just isn't there. The decision-making just isn't there all the time, but he'll make a few wild throws a game where you're like, wow. And the problem with that is as you get older and your athleticism and your God-given ability somewhat diminish, you have to become more fundamentally sound to stay alive in this game, especially at the quarterback position. I don't know if Carson Wentz is going to be able to do that because he hasn't added the requisite steps up within his game necessary to improve in this league. And so now it becomes all about the ideal situation. If you're going to continue to be a natural talent in this league, then as long as your prime is, you have to be able to maximize it by having an ideal situation to where you can get away with utilizing your God-given gifts because everything around you is constructed to where you'll still be successful. And so we've talked about how the Colts did what they couldn't do for Andrew Luck, which is for the past two to three years, build a competent offensive line. And they've been able to run the ball very well. I was very high on Jonathan Taylor last season. He, what a lot of people didn't recognize, was a top five rusher in all of football as a rookie. And their receiving core isn't the greatest. It's not bad. It's pretty okay. Michael Pittman has a chance to possibly be something special. And we know his relationship with Frank White, what it did in 2017. So they're in a position to where the team around him is successful enough to where he can play very well. But it's safe to say that if he doesn't perform at his highest level with the Colts, there's a chance that that can be infinito when it comes to his career. It could be over. And that's kind of where we're at with Carson Wentz currently as a player. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And it's going to be really interesting to see just how he does play with Frank Reich. Obviously, some of his best years early on with the Eagles was Reich at the offensive coordinator position. Obviously, the Colts hired him after the Super Bowl year, went second year after he got injured, but was putting up MVP numbers. So those were Wentz's best years, and obviously that year he had a great supporting cast as Nick Foles found success in the postseason when Wentz got hurt. And as you said, the 
if he really does want to succeed with the Colts, even though he's back with a coach that he's extremely comfortable with, they need to get more receivers. Michael Pittman and aging T.Y. Hilton isn't going to be enough for him. They need another effective tight end. Doesn't need to be a Travis Kelsey or George Kittle type tight end, but they just need to get somebody reliable in there. And they definitely need to add more on the offensive line. So there's still a lot of work the Colts need to do, but I do love that you also think Jonathan Taylor is extremely underrated. I was extremely high on him. I think if they can at least add another offensive lineman, they can really get that round game, run game going in. That can take a lot of pressure off Wentz because at the end of the day, you really don't want to put the game in Wentz's hands because even though he does have that mentality, he can make any throw, as we've seen in the past, that gets him into a lot of trouble. So you got to give him that supporting cast, and the Colts still have a decent amount of work to do. But I do like Michael Pittman, and I do like Jonathan Taylor. Those are great blocks for him, but obviously they need another offensive tackle after their left tackle was tired. So they do have a lot of work. And I think if Wentz can really pop back into the scene as one of the better quarterbacks, it's not going to be next year. They're probably two or three years away because they can't get it all done in one offseason. It's a great perspective. Um, I agree as well. When it comes to Wentz and the Colts situation currently, they do have nice building blocks, but they are maybe two to three years away. T.Y. Hoon is on his last leg. I remember coming into the year, he was kind of, tinkering about the possibility of maybe retiring now like I said before when it came to talking about the Texans the Colts are in a division that isn't that good and so they do have the flexibility to be able to mix and match at times to figure out what their identity should be and how they should cater to Carson Wentz but we both can agree Wentz was at his best with a solid running game and even when he was with Philadelphia last season there were ninth in rushing yards but 23rd in attempts and maybe a lot of that could have been their offensive line was very beat up. And they were like, we just don't trust our offensive line has the uh, cohesiveness to run block consistently enough from a schematic perspective. But it's been shown during his successful years, he's had top 10, top nine, top five running attacks in all of football. And we know with the Colts are under Frank Wright in that offensive line, they're going to run it to the best of their ability to make sure they not only protect Wentz from himself in terms of making bad decisions, but open up the passing lanes even more to allow Wentz to utilize his arm strength to hit the open targets. And so segue into Philly, the team that he left, they're in a unique spot. They trade Wentz and everybody thinks, okay, they're going to give the job to um, Jalen Hurts. It's, it's his to lose. Now you're hearing talks of they're not going to give it to him and they may add a veteran within the mix to possibly compete. Philadelphia does pick number six overall, which possibly means who knows what the Eagles organization is going to think of if at the sixth pick, the likes of Justin Fields um, and the guy from North Dakota State are possibly there as well. Can you trust for sure? And would you not have a problem with Philadelphia saying, you know what, we're going to build this around Jalen Hurts or adding some more comps so they can truly justify who they should move forward with at the quarterback helm within their franchise. Yeah, it's a really unique situation. Obviously, they take Jalen Hurts round two, and there's just not a lot of clarity where he stands with the organization. Obviously, they just don't get rid of Wentz without a plan. Now it just comes down to what that plan is, and you can really – kind of justify any scenario if they want to go quarterback like Justin Fields or Trey Lance you can definitely 
justify that and Hurts did have flashes his rookie year and the Eagles do as you said pick number six and have a chance to get blue chip player so either scenario I think you can justify it personally if I'm the Eagles and if a quarterback falls or even if you want to trade up for one like let's say Justin Fields is there at five with the Bengals and if a guy like Justin Fields, Zach Wilson's there, I bet the Bengals would be listening to phone calls and trading up one spot would not take as much value or as much assets as picking from like 12 or 13. So they definitely do have that chance or maybe they want to trade up the fourth, the Falcons, or who knows what the Falcons are going to do. I think a lot of it does depend on where the draft falls, what quarterbacks taken out where and what other teams want to do. Maybe the Eagles want to give Jalen Hurts a year. And like I said, you can justify that. He's shown flashes. I'm not sure how Jalen Hurts is going to work out in the long run. Obviously, I think it's going to be a scenario where, yeah, he had a flashes, but the NFL defense really weren't preparing for them. And, yeah, he has that running ability, but he's not Lamar Jackson. He's not going to be that same game changer. So does it get to the point where, okay, He's starting consistently. We have the game tape on him, and he has weaknesses. His arm is nowhere near as strong as a guy like Lamar Jackson. He's not as fast or agile as Lamar Jackson. So I think his potential is a bit more limited. So uh, like I said, personally with the Eagles, I'm looking for that quarterback, but they definitely do have a great opportunity to build around Jalen Hurts as he's on that rookie contract and second round rookie contracts so cheaper compared to a guy like Joe Burrow or Justin Herbert and like I said you can get a blue chip player for him and you're picking high in every other round if you draft correctly you can set up a really good team around Hurts but it's really hard to pass up on a guy like Justin Fields or Zach Wilson if they're there where you're picking or if you really like them to trade up because they can be game changers and I'm just not sure Jalen Hurts is going to be that guy in the long run. Yeah, I agree. I think the sad truth with Jalen Hurts is, and it makes it even worse now that you truly think about it. You know, he's progressed so much as a passer from his freshman year at Alabama to his current, you know, rookie season and into his second year with Philadelphia. But I do think the sad truth is he's maybe Tyrod Taylor that's just a bit physicaler than Taylor as a runner. And when you draft basically a Tyrod Taylor clone in the second round, you didn't make a good investment because basically what you drafted was a backup quarterback who can maybe have a couple of stints within the league of being a starter for a team. And so if I am Philadelphia, if there's a quarterback that falls that I genuinely like on my draft board, I consider taking him. And I know Philadelphia fans are like, we got to take a receiver because we missed out on DK Metcalf and Justin Jefferson. And it's like, it doesn't matter about the receivers that you have on your team. If you don't have the quarterback play down pat, no one on the outside will blossom within your passing game. And so I think Philadelphia, and I feel like they did, I felt the same way when they made the choice last draft. When they took Jalen Hurts in the second round, I was like, they, they took a backup quarterback in the second round. And I didn't, I knew it wasn't a diaper on Carson Wentz. I knew it was an insurance policy just in case Wentz got hurt. Because at that time, I felt like they still did believe in Hurts until he had the horrendous season last year. But I just felt like Hurts was going to be there. And a couple of rounds later, and you could have used that pick to bolster up your receiving core, bolster up your offensive line, especially on the left side where Andre Dillard didn't, pl- didn't play at all last season because he got hurt. And so I just feel like Philadelphia didn't went about it wrong. They basically traded their franchise quarterback away because there was a miscommunication and a level of distrust between the QB and the front office. 
and you pretty much mortgage your future to a quarterback that you've basically admitted by saying we're not going to give him the the job we're going to have him get some competition that you don't think he's ready which means now you don't have any legitimate quarterback play in your quarterback room that you believe in heading into the season and so it puts them in a very unique bind to where now you're at pick number six and you got a ton of needs and so it's a little bit hard to just be like i'm going to go there because you do have problems at receiver your offensive line is kind of getting a little bit old on a defense that cornerback play is very suspect darius slay they got him in free agency and he just it's kind of washed. And so that's a position you can also consider as well. And so they're in a unique spot to where they can't go wrong if they have a certain level of players on their board that they like at their spot, but they could also miss it yet again if they decide to cater for one position over another. Yeah, absolutely. And the Eagles really want to fix this scenario. They just have to go all in. If they really don't believe in Hurts, then you have to get your quarterback now you don't know how many strong quarterback classes are going to be in the future. Obviously last year it was a strong class between Burrow, Herbert, and Tua, and this year's obviously a strong class, but it's never guaranteed that you're going to have an opportunity to either take a quarterback or only have to trade up a few spots to get a quarterback if you're really high on them. And so, yeah, if you don't believe in Hurts and you really love one of these quarterbacks, you just kind of have to, bite the bullet and take one of those quarterbacks and just admit, yeah, we screwed up with Jalen Hurts, then if you do decide to go that route, then it's crucial that you get these next picks right. Like, obviously, Jalen Rager, he's still a bit of a mystery, but I thought that was a little high for Rager. I was high on Rager, but not that high on him. I think, And also, free agency is going to be extremely crucial. You have to spend money obviously that's what the good teams do they draft well and sign proper free agents and the Eagles can't set themselves up where they have to draft one position that's something the Bengals have done a pretty poor job at the past few years for example when they took Billy Price even though he shouldn't have probably gone to round two you don't want to put yourself in that scenario so Eagles it doesn't even need to be some amazing player you can just get a solid receiver who you know is going to be reliable. Then if you don't love one of those quarterbacks and a guy like Devontae Smith or Jay or Jamar Chase is there, then he's like, sweet, we can add him to the roster. We have Jalen Rager and we have some reliable receiver. Or you can sign an offensive lineman. So if you do decide to go quarterback, you're adding another offensive lineman to protect him. And if you don't like a quarterback and Sewell won't be there at five because obviously I think the Bengals will take him, but if they're really high on a guy like Rashawn Slater, then you can add him and suddenly you have a really solid offensive line to decide to protect Hurts. So whatever it is they decide to do, they just can't force themselves into drafting by one position. They need to have a plan, whether it's with Hurts or they want a new quarterback. They need to decide on that and decide on that well before the free agency period so they can start coming up with a proper plan and not put themselves into a situation where they have to reach for a need or they're just completely missing a spot on an offense for the defensive position. Yeah, usually when you're picking these top 10 spots in any draft, whether it's football, NBA, MLB, you have a variety of uh, reasons why you're picking there because you're not a very good football team with tons of holes at various positions. And so with Philadelphia, yeah, we can both agree that quarterback play was the main reason why they lost plenty of games, but their defense struggled. And their offensive line got hurt. And a lot of that is because we do know Dillard was very young and he got hurt early in the year. But a lot of those guys are older. Lane Johnson got older. 
P- Jason Peters before he got hurt, wanted to get paid even more money, basically saying, I'm not supposed to be out here anyway. So if I'm going to be playing out of position, pay me my worth because he was at the tail end of his career. And so defensively, I've been saying it for years and I'm not really even a Philly fan. Uh, their cornerback situation has been in flux. Uh, they've got Jalen Mills playing corner. They've had him playing corner for years when he, he was at LSU, who's a safety. And so there's tons of holes on their roster that deserve to be patched up. You could do it in free agency. You could do it in a draft. But I agree with you, like you said, you never just want to be that franchise on draft day feeling like we got to take this one for the sake of our fan base or we got to take this one to put you know butts in the seats. No, you got to take the best player available for the sake of the franchise because fans, they come and go. Money will always be there, but your franchise will always be there, too. And you always want to stay on the consistent trajectory towards being competitive. You don't want to continue to be bottom of dollars within your divisions or a relevant or an irrelevant team overall within the league. You always want to be competitive and you always want to feel like you're pushing towards the greater goal. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think, and I do think kind of what the fans, what's kind of an overblown argument like, obviously, front offices aren't going to listen to the fan base on who to draft, but I completely agree. You got to do what's best for the franchise. And, yeah, it's going to piss off some fans, and, but that's just the reality of the NFL business. But as we both seem to agree on, you got to do what's best for the franchise. You can't put yourself in a corner where you're desperate for one position. You have to be prepared for many scenarios and just be ready for that. That's why you have to sign multiple players in free agency. So if draft day doesn't go as planned you have a backup plan and with that backup plan was not screwed on your initial plan right and with that that'll be the end of episode eight uh it was great to have you Braden um first guest on the podcast and it was just an enjoyable time for us to both interact and talk about the various topics I had for us to speak on our insight for the game and understanding it's very influential and before you go you know, the floor is yours, you know, further promote your product on IG and just tell all the viewers and listeners uh, what you're going to continue to bring to the table on your IG platform. Yeah, absolutely. So like it was said earlier in the episode, my Instagram is Bengals underscore NFL. So Buzz, y'all could give me a follow. And for this off season, I'm going to be doing between my website and on my Instagram page, breaking down NFL prospects for the NFL draft also free agent targets for the Bengals such as Joe Thune, Brandon Sheriff, Trent Williams, offensive linemen like that and potentially cornerbacks depending on what the Bengals do with William Jackson so just trying to give a lot of insight on those free agents and NFL prospects and even if you're not a Bengals fan uh, you can still get some enjoyment out of that. It's nice to know who these free agents are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And same for the NFL draft, because I plan to do scout as many people as I can. And obviously the Bengals aren't going to draft everybody who I scout. So just getting the basis of the information, I always find really enjoyable. So if you guys are really into that, I would recommend following me as I do a lot of those. And I plan on doing a lot more coming soon in the future. All right, Brady, man, you have a great day. And uh, guys, it's the end of episode eight. Um, I'll be back with episode nine and, you know, continue the independent Intel podcast. Guys, have a great day.